0: listen to No Borders Media. In this audio dispatch, we get insights and perspectives on resisting the racist far right from three anti-racist organizers in Toronto involved in the recent mobilization against the Steve Bannon-David Frum Monk debate. In this extended interview, Sharmin Khan, Maya Menezes, and Rachel Small, all actively involved in mobilizing over 1,000 people to oppose racism in Toronto this past Friday, collectively share their frontline organizing reflections. Together, Sharmin, Maya, and Rachel address many tactical and strategic challenges in resisting the far right including confronting police violence, organized media work, coalition building, experiments in organizing, using disruptive tactics, rejecting cynicism, and overcoming marginality by engaging in concerted public and popular education. This interview was recorded on November 5th, 2018, three days after the Toronto protest against Fannin and Fromm. I'm speaking with Maya Menezes, Charmaine Khan, and Rachel Small. All three were organizers of this past Friday's protest against both Steve Bannon and David Frum at the Monk Debates. They are part of the Bannon from Toronto Unwelcoming Committee. Maya, Charmaine, and Rachel, welcome to No Borders Media.
1: Hi. Thanks. Thanks for having us.
0: Uh, Rachel and Charmaine, we, uh, we spoke before the protest, and now it's a couple of days afterwards. And we've added Maya, who was as involved as, as you guys were in, in organizing this protest. So I'm wondering, just to start off, if you can share your impressions of this mobilization that took place this past Friday, and which captured a lot of headlines across Canada and really across North America. Maybe, Maya, we can start with you.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I see this as an incredible win, uh, mostly because I mean, we had hope to maybe at at best gather about 200, 300 people in the streets and to have at peak almost 2,000 people was a really incredible coming together of anti-racist folks in the city. I mean, I don't think any of us had expected that so many people would be willing to come out to um, a much more uh, militantly involved direct action and participate to the end. So, and, And from the number of people in the streets to the media coverage that adopted messaging of I actually naming white supremacy, white nationalism, and fascism as things that are attached to um, both Trump and Bannon were things that were really, really powerful to see. So I think it was an incredible win.
0: How about you, Charmaine?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think reflecting, it was a really hard week. Um, you know, we um, were faced with, um, you know, a shooting at a synagogue and then the Brazil win and I think for the last few months, it's just sort of been an onslaught of, like, very, you know, um, yeah, I've been feeling very low politically. And so I think um, it was it was really, really um, great that our event spoke to so many people about what Benin um, spoke for. And, I mean, I personally found that a bit challenging, um, you know, to talk about Benin and from and um, making a way that was, that could speak to people um, and why, why it's important to oppose him. and so it was really great that so many people um, agreed and came out. Um, I do have a small like feeling of disappointment that we weren't able to shut d- shut it down because I really like we all tried so hard even before and during um, to shut down the event. Um, but I'm glad that so many people showed up and also that we delayed um, it and we got to confront a huge lineup. Um, so people had to face us as they went in. Um, like Rick Mercer and like really, um, like, I don't know, famous journalists and stuff had to face the crowd as they went in. And so uh, that was really great. It
0: seemed like the crowd, um, was, it seemed like the audience was only 50% what it was supposed to be, too. So that might have had something to do with the uh, protest. Uh, Rachel, how about you? And I know, uh, in the midst of all the organizing, you were also somebody who who got arrested too. So, as you give your um, impressions of how it went, maybe uh, talk about the impressions, but also talk about the cop response, which resulted in in your arrest.
3: Yeah, I would I would echo a lot of what Maya and mean said. I For me, the feeling in the city over the past few months has been, uh, I mean, people talk about a far right wave that's growing. And I think it has felt kind of like this weight, like this thing that is happening to our city that is rending people in our city. And I've been feeling and hearing a lot of people talking about powerlessness in the face of that. So I think um, while there's been a number of maybe like smaller anti-fascist things, and there's obviously been people doing a ton of work every day, all the time, To counter that movement, this felt like the biggest win, the biggest public thing that we could hold up uh, strongly opposing that movement that at least I've seen in Toronto in a very, very long time. So I think that was huge. Um, I personally saw basically none of the rally because um, I, for a brief period, was in the ticket holders line and then was arrested uh, while coming maddeningly close to, to locking down the box office. So I'm obviously disappointed that we were not uh, successful in actually um, shutting off some of the doors to the place and, and maybe more actively preventing the event from happening at all. Uh, though it was pushed back an hour, the start time. And as you mentioned, it was only 50% full when it started and then more people kind of trickled in as it happened. Um I was arrested with with just a very small group of people who, as I mentioned, were trying to lock the box office. We arrested very violently um I was not injured, but someone beside me was punched in the face and is yeah currently dealing with really serious health repercussions, a serious concussion, a broken tooth, um two black guys it was it was really uh yeah, it was a brutal arrest that happened there um other people uh, yeah, throughout the night, were pepper sprayed, were um, hit with batons. Uh, someone else suffered a very serious concussion while being arrested. Other people were uh, held in police vans for upwards of five hours, which is yeah, for anyone who's been in a police van, that's a terrible situation. And there's no temperature control. And anyways, the police brutality was was really intense.
0: A lot of people have uh, have mentioned that an action isn't over until. We make sure everyone who's arrested is out of jail, and uh, that either their charges are dropped or resolved in some sort of satisfactory way. So, could you just let our listeners, because I know a lot of listeners to No Borders Media will want to know what kind of charges are people facing, what kind of conditions are they facing, Uh, is everyone out? and what's legal support looking like right now. And it's also an opportunity to to make a pitch if there is a fund or there will be a fund for legal support where people should check that out. So maybe I'll start with you, Rachel, but if, if Maya or Charmin want to add anything about legal support, they can as well.
3: Sure. Um, I'm not uh, 100% confirmed on every single person's charges at this point. 13... Um, 13- at least 13 people were arrested. I know one was charged with assaulting an officer. I think most people were charged with mischief under 5,000. There were some tickets with fines and maybe a few other assorted charges. Um, I think there will definitely be a unified call out for support and a legal fund, but I think it's just a bit too early at this point, um, and we're just getting all of that sorted.
0: Rachel, you got arrested early, but maybe Maya and or Charmaine, you can just share your impressions of how that evening played out. I'm from Toronto. (laughs) You know, Roy Thompson Hall is in the heart of downtown, you know, on King Street, just off of university. It was a fall evening. Um, It was dusk. So I can just imagine just sort of that setting. But to add to that, you know, upwards of more than, you know, what was supposed to be more than 2,000 people to attend the event, most of whom are probably in some way hostile to the protesters that are criticizing them from going in. And then on our side, the anti-racist side, over at least over a thousand protesters. I wasn't there, but that's what I make out from it. But um, Maya and Charmine and Rachel too. But Maya and Charmine, let us know like how it played out. What was it like to be there? What was the what was the mood? What happened? I know you've talked about people moving around a lot and the police brutality. Let us know how it, how it played out on the streets of Toronto this past Friday night.
2: It, it started out like honestly very strong, and um, the reason I'm trying to be reflective is because. Um, I was personally just very nervous. We had, um, it's been a while since we, since I had planned a rally um, and we wanted to coordinate like one action of a rally that would support different forms of actions to try and stop the event. And so I was very nervous of how that was going to go down. And, um, you know, I, we had to still, um debrief amongst all of us about what could have been better and things like that. But, I was very nervous because um, this kind of communication had stopped with a lot of the people. And I realized then that some arrests had happened very early. Like I'm talking, the event started at five. And um, shortly after five, people were arrested. So um, I was just um, dealing with the excitement of people arriving. And then people I was organizing with getting arrested and just feeling this sense of, okay, I just got to like push forward, but also... Uh, people getting arrested, and um, it was really hard to get information that was correct. But, um, honestly, the streets um, filled, like King and Simcoe, we were, um, like Maya said, I was only expecting a couple hundred people. Um, not sure why I downplayed it, but we um, we had gotten so full that we had to take uh, Simcoe, so we had to take the streets. Um, and uh, that was really exciting, although challenging, because when a crowd is so big and you're not prepared for it, it's um, hard to communicate and so some parts of um the rally um it was great they kind of like were they couldn't hear everything of the speaker so they just kind of chanted on their own and um started confronting people lining up um so yeah the the streets are pretty full with over a thousand people i've heard various numbers um it was like people saying it was you know um, maybe be 1500 and uh what we had found out was that um um, police were kind of filing people um, away from the rally, so we were at the corner of King and Simcoe, and they're letting people in at the other end of Wellington, um, where um, there was like different forms of drug action happening, but they're away from the uh, from the rally. So uh, we had decided that we would move the rally down and actually be right in front of the doors. Um, so we were there for um, you know uh, a, a, bit, a long while. Uh, we had speeches. We had ch- chant, chant, chants. Um, and also Rhythms of Resistance came out, which was really great. Um, So it was kind of a mix of some people listening to the speeches, but also some people taking on their own to be really confrontational with uh, the people entering Roy Thompson Hall um, with their tickets. Um, And uh, a lot of the rally was also responding to what the police were doing. So we heard of um, um, pepper spray happening. Um, We tried to respond as best as we could to other both keep people safe, but have people respond, um, have people um, be there to help the people who are pepper sprayed, um, and then we also heard of the police kind of slowly being to surround us, and I think kind of some G20 memories um, triggered us, and there was a fear that we we're they're going to try and cuddle us. So then we moved the rally again um, to take over. King and Simcoe, so that we could have different avenues to leave if we needed to. And there, what was kind of amazing was that the lineup to go to Roy Thompson Hall was so long that it kind of like went out and then curved down, across, like down King Street, so that, you know, I didn't know who was protester and who was a Roy Thompson Hall person, like I was a little confused why some protesters were so fancy, and I'm like, oh, this is actually a person going into Roy Thompson Hall, so... You know, protesters and, and people in line were, like, face-to-face, very close. And um, and I heard various conversations happening. Like, people chose how they wanted to engage with people in the lineup. Some were just, like, actually having a debate with them. And other people were yelling shame or, you know, just yelling at them. Um, and I could foresee a lot of people arriving and seeing that huge rally and leaving. And I think that's what accounted to a lot of the empty seats inside Um, The rally went, like, it started at five, and um, we stayed until the last person went inside. We knew that there were people um, who bought tickets to disrupt the event. Um, I didn't really know what that plan was, uh, but we knew that something would happen inside, and there was a banner drop when when Bannon was speaking. Um, Also, I heard that people were regularly booing um, during the debate. I haven't watched the debate, so I'm not sure what their response was like. Um, but just as, because um, it was a lo- long rally and it was getting cold, the numbers were beginning to thin out once the people went in. And so everyone's safety, we decided to leave all together. And then also um, a few of us then um, did um, arrest support and go to the different police stations to wait for people to be released. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what happened. I don't know, Maya, if you had any details you wanted to put in that I might have missed. Yeah, I
1: mean I I thought in I think any time you call a coalition of so many different groups of people, communication's gonna break um, in some ways. Absolutely. Um I think that what was really I think what was really interesting that happened was we were expecting to spill over the street, but we weren't expecting to spill over onto the street as much as we did. I think by the time people started arriving, I mean, we were there doing media interviews at about 4 o'clock, 4.30. Um, By about, you know, 5 o'clock, media were asking us, you know, how many people do you expect and what do you think is going to happen? But by 6.30, there was well over 1,000 people there, and that was really wonderful and surprising. And so the concern, of course, was, you know, are we here to just, you know, stand? Or if the police are attacking people can we strategically move to protect those people? Um, And so I think the decision was made at that point to move with police violence to ensure that we would have strength in numbers and making sure community was safe. Um, And I think that's where things got complicated, but um, largely I think it is a really big learning experience for us and how we stay in touch with people. I think there was a lot of... um, confusion about, I mean, at, at some point the police did try and us from Wellington and uh, King Street, which are uh, north and south of Simcoe. Um, and so, I, thankfully, I think we had a lot of people who had a lot of, you know, past action, and for sure you mentioned the like G20 experience, and decided, you know, let's take the intersection. Um, I think it was really, I think it was a really good strategic decision. I think we, it was, you know, it had to happen when it happened because it took that long to have the number of people who were willing to make that move. Um, but I think it was a very powerful image for everyone that was in line. You know, of course, there were there are about 2,300 seats in Roy Thompson Hall. We had about between 1,500 and 2,000 people on the street at peak. Um, and so when we delayed the event to the extent that we did, the line to get up was wrapped around the protest. Um, and so we were ringed by people waiting to get in, which sparked a lot of um interesting confrontation, um, but also conversations. I know a lot of protesters, I saw them walking up to people, asking them questions about why they were attending, what brought them there, what kept them there, what they were hoping to get out of this. Um, And I think it was a really important frame that we were able to take with the media. I mean, I know, for example, that when um, protesters started being attacked by police, that suddenly um, I was hearing media cameras around us reporting uh, protesters attacking uh, folks in the line, which we knew was absolutely not true. We knew that there was screaming fights going on, but there was nothing uh, physical about it. And so that I think presented a really great tactical opportunity for us to jump in front of the cameras and start naming police violence. And that went wildly to our advantage and um, was a really important lesson to learn about getting in front of that media angle. and I think we saw that parroted in a lot of the uh, media channels that we were communicating on, which is really wonderful. So that was like a very, for me, a, an important tactical experience of having somebody assigned to like get in front of that media message and steer that narrative in a public way. I think the thing that was really wonderful as well about the messaging of it all um, was having, uh, I mean, I didn't get to watch uh, a lot of the media interviews until Saturday and, and yesterday, um, but it was really powerful to see the public having a conversation about white supremacy and white nationalism
3: with the media. I
1: mean, I think like uh, I mean Rachel and I were chatting about this earlier, but um, it was it's been rare that those titles are attached to Bannon in a really public way. Um, and we talk about you know populism, and we talk about the rise of radical right wing extremism and the alt right, but those specific terms, I think, have sparked a debate that are um, <laughs> one of the few debates we're having in this scenario, which is, you know, why why aren't we talking about this? And why aren't we calling, you know, a spade a spade? Um, and that was really exciting. I think, like, one of the things that I learned a hard way was to expect the unexpected. I think in Toronto, we hadn't seen um, pepper spray used in this way on protesters in a really long time. And so when pepper spray was whipped out, no one was prepared. Um, we didn't have milk and magnesia. We didn't have milk in general. And and when the medics went dark, suddenly a lot of people had to spring into action who were not prepared to. And I think it was met in the best way that it could be, but it taught, I think for me, it taught a really valuable lesson in being prepared just in case and having people with all of those antidotes ready. Um, And so that was one of the harder lessons of the night and that people got hurt in that way. And it took a while for us to respond to getting people the relief that they needed.
0: Rachel, do you want to add anything to what Charmin and Mai have just outlined about how it played out that day? Again, you've already mentioned you were you were taken out of commission a bit early, but uh, how did, what was your take?
3: I might just add something about the actions that took place uh, inside. Again, I didn't see this personally, but I, I debriefed with one of the people who dropped one of the two banner drops that happened inside the debate itself, and I thought what she, some of what she said, was really interesting. She talked about. I mean, she stood in that line for a very, very long time, I guess an hour and a half. So had some interesting, yeah, opportunities to hear what people were saying. I mean, I think a lot of it was, was stuff that other people have already mentioned, that this was kind of an amusing, entertaining evening for people um, that they, yeah, that they didn't feel any, uh, that they, they really weren't absorbing what anyone like so much of Toronto was trying to tell them about how there's real violence and there's real implications uh, involved with letting these people speak. But also she, she talked about the types of things people were saying in line and how there was a real defensiveness there as well. People were saying, Oh, Ben is not anti-Semitic for these reasons that were frankly just bullshit made up lies or, or, Oh, from didn't really do these things. Like it seemed like there was quite a bit of defensiveness, but then when people finally moved inside, she noted that, suddenly everyone kind of relaxed and it's like, oh, we're safe here. We're with our people here. Nothing, forget it, like forget everything about that protest outside. So that's partially why I think it's so important that and so exciting that there were these successful disruptions inside. Like there just doesn't get to be a safe space for white supremacy and there doesn't get to be a space where people feel like they don't, they're not going to be made uncomfortable and they're not going to be called out on what they're supporting with their presence with I mean with their money paying to be there um and the first person who dropped uh the banner that said no hate no bigotry no place for Bannon's white supremacy um I mean I think she thought she was only going to have about 10 seconds to yell but she had like two and a half three minutes um and those are minutes that Bannon was trying to speak and the and he was unable to and so I think I think that was a powerful thing that happened inside there as well
0: In in assessing these kinds of mobilizations, uh, there's how people on the outside see it, there's what happened and what the media says happened, there are the goals that organizers set for themselves and the goals that people think the organizers did set for themselves. So, Uh, you know, as an outside observer, (laughs) this mobilization was really inspiring. You know, I wasn't there, I wanted to go, but I I just couldn't go. But, you know, having at least a thousand people come out for something like this is really fucking impressive. Clearly this that's a reflection of of a lot of coalition building and organizing and maybe a lot of groups that don't often organize together trying to do that and even on on the I mean there's already been the critical note that it would have been better if it was actually shut down or there might have been some actions plan that didn't quite pan out the way they intended to but you know, I always the way I always put it is just trying is enough, right? And you learn your lessons and just try to do it mm-hmm. better the next time. So that's my take on the outside, right? So I'm just saying it seems like a huge tactical victory. And just I guess make one more point before turning it over to you to maybe sort of summarize this assessment as organizers of how it went. The media stuff, uh, Maya talked about that in in detail, and actually all three of you have talked about it. But Maya, in, in your response, you talked about it in some detail. That was just a huge success. The framing of this really questioned. Whether someone like Bannon or even from but particularly Bannon, should be given this kind of platform, that was clear, and all three of you were were in the the midst of this media hurricane in one way or another, and I uh, just want to say observing it through the mainstream media it really came out loud and clear with just some really clear messaging, clear sound bites, a clear critique of why this is happening. So again, as an outside observer, those are some of my observations. And, and I, I do make critical observations, but just <laughs> I know what it takes to get a 1,000 people out on a Friday night to take on something like this, and that's not easy. And you guys did it. But I'm just wondering, as organizers, knowing that a lot of our audience here listening to this podcast are, are often organizers in other cities all over North America and parts of Europe, uh, all over the world, actually. What are other lessons or your assessment of how it played out beyond what you've already said? Maybe a, a quick summary of that, if, if each of you can, can mention that. Any one of you can start. Go ahead.
2: Okay, I'll start. This is um, Charmaine. Um, yeah, I think in summary, you're right. Um, that it, thanks, Jaggy, for the props. <laughs> so Because, um, yeah, when you're kind of in it, you just kind of really focus on small details, so it's hard to have a bird's-eye view. Um, I think the big lesson is that um, there are so many opportunities and experiments Um, if we can open ourselves to more coalition building. I think that's been my whole, my big lesson, because I did work with groups that I I didn't work with before, you know, some that um, um, I, you know, I'm like, Oh, they're so too liberal. And some that I'm like, Oh, they're just like, so inexperienced. And I think that I just had to open myself to try like to, build trust and to be open to experiments and compromises. And I think that's hard for any, you know, any activist group and especially if you are, you know, wanting to be really radical and militant, it's um it's it can be there's some there were some really hard discussions and and, and conversations and debates. But I think we were able to provide an event that different people with various comfort levels could participate in. And I think that we have to be more open to that. Um, and experiment more, um, and so that's my sort of big takeaway is that I think when you're open to working with kind of the unusual suspects, that it actually opens more opportunity where you can experiment. And so, yeah, we took risks. I mean, I took risks I didn't take before, and I think that's kind of why we got the you know the large showing is because that people, different people, could see themselves um, in this um, uh, in this like in this protest.
0: Rachel or Maya, do you want to add anything?
3: Maybe I'll um, just piggyback because I think I wanted to say something about risks as well. Like, I think even just being this hopeful was a risk, honestly. Like, daring to think that we, I mean, Boris Thompson Hall has like 20 doors. Like, even just thinking <laughs> that we could take on this venue with <laughs> this person. Um, <laughs> like, the monk debate is kind of like a big fucking deal here in Toronto, too, and is like a conservative love. Hit. Like, this was, I think, super ambitious. And I think there's some, not, not, this is not just a Toronto thing, but there's like a lot of cynicism here. And I think it was a big risk to even just like step beyond that. And like you said, Jackie, just like really try.
0: How about you, Maya?
1: I think the biggest thing that I'm taking away from this, and just to not, so so I'm not repeating what Rachel and uh, Charmaine have have really well said, uh, is to not be afraid to lean into a media strategy. I think that, you know, when I, when I think about why, why do we keep losing and what is the right doing better than us, it's having a really clear, very malleable and, like, easy-to-understand frame. It's accessible. It's far-reaching. And to be able not be afraid to get in front of the media narrative that you're expecting. I think something that we did well very early on was starting to frame things to the public in a way that people could hold on to and a way that people could reach um, in whatever area of accessibility they were at and then just to drive it home. And when we knew that the media were really picking up on Bannon and that white supremacy and white nationalism were being tied to this debate, we were able to introduce from in a way that made sense for people. And we were able to drive home, um, you know, a critique of the Iraq war that got picked up by the media. Um, And being able to not be afraid to, no matter which way the media is going to take your angle, to get in front of a camera and steer it back the way you want it to be steered. I think that that was really invaluable because what it actually has done is sparked a much wider conversation with people that, of course, were not at the cortex and were not able to see the signs and weren't able to be there for the chance. And looping in a wider demographic and a wider conversation of people who are going to be willing to have this interrogation and critique of the ways in which we host space or give platforms to people was highly strategic, I think, and something that we need to learn to do more. Um, And so that's something that I would encourage folks to not be afraid to do and to reach out to people who you know, who know how to pull data in this way and know how to get key frames out in this way to try it and not be afraid um, to get in front of it.
0: This is uh, audio, so it's it's tough to get reactions, but I just wanna say that I've been nodding vigorously at practically everything that everybody's been saying. But at that at that point you just made, Maya, about you know, getting ahead of the media frame and not being afraid of that I was particularly nodding vigorously and I pumped my fist at one of those things you said. I just I just wanted to really agree with that and clearly uh you <laughs> folks you folks in Channel did that well. Um let's talk about some uh, some subcategories here. I mean I think we've we've covered pretty well um a general assessment and how it played out. One thing is uh, Glenn Greenwald, who by the way uh, was in the Monk debates uh, a few years ago, Glenn Greenwald uh, made sort of a critique on Twitter, which I felt was a bit unfair, but I just want to address it because, you know, Greenwald is someone who is respected amongst the general liberal left um, and has done some good work in exposing um, state surveillance and what have you. I mean, he, he seemed to be, I, I won't quote it word for word, but he seemed to, from afar, be saying that somehow David Frum was, was either uh, not being critiqued or even being supported, and it's Bannon was being targeted. So, you know, you guys were organizing this. You're putting forward the media frames, and clearly there's more of a focus on Bannon because Trump is in power. <laughs> but um, talk about this idea that somehow you gave, a, or according to Glenn Greenwald, you gave David Frum uh, a free pass in, in critiquing Bannon, but not Frum, according to Greenwald. I'm not sure if one of you wants to address that. And I asked that knowing how annoying that critique must be.
3: <laughs> I can go for it. <laughs> you guys will jump in. This is Rachel. Uh, I can speak to that a little bit. I, yeah, I think on one level, his, his tweet was was pretty annoying. I mean, I think it was reflective of someone who, who wasn't there, who was looking at some things from afar, and frankly, to, to judge what protesters thought or cared about or were motivated by based on like a small bit of mainstream media is, I mean, maybe not the best way to do that. I thought there was something interesting in his tweet though. I think if you took the word protesters out of it and just talked about how do liberals feel about this debate, I think there was some real truth there. I think that uh, this was not reflective of the coalition organizing it or honestly of the thousand plus protesters on the street, but I think liberal Toronto as a whole probably did feel more or less as he said which is oh Ben is terrible but we welcome from to kind of run like write in and I don't know, take him on and, and redeem us. Um I think he was pointing to like a real a real issue that is happening there.
0: Uh Charmaine or Maya do you have anything more to add about this Greenwald tweet?
2: Yeah, um this is Charmaine. I so yeah, um from the very beginning we um talked about um from and his role in the Iraq War has been basically the chief architect for propaganda as a speechwriter. And, um, and we had a lot of debates, I mean, to be upfront in the coalition about um, how much to center that. You know, if it was a debate between From and someone else, would we still be here? Would this the protests protest, et cetera, et cetera? But, um, but we, were, we were organizing against that, and also the whole framing of the debate right, which was this kind of reforming of From who is now seen as anti-Trump and as seen as like a, you know, mere reformed, you know, maybe a more, uh, more liberal conservative or something to be the rational opposition to Bannon was in itself just ridiculous. And so, um, but we made strategic choices, you know, and I think Maya um, explained the media strategy of, you know, really centering Bannon, uh, because he is more popular, and also Bannon is has a particular project right now that is incredibly harmful. You know, in terms of like his world tour and the movement he's trying to build and his role in Europe, and so um, definitely like that that maybe um, had more airtime. But when we could, when we we're able to engage the people, we did bring up some and his role, and um, and it was in all it, it was in most of our um, messaging. And also our protest was like the Bannon from, it was like a Bannon from protest. So it was just like an anti-Bannon thing. So um, yeah, I could um, maybe, so like, maybe he just saw one clip and he made that assumption. Um, and um, yeah, and I'm kind of like, I'm mostly annoyed that he thinks it was liberals who organized this. Like liberals would never um, have a no platform of politics or want to shut down an event like this. So I was a bit annoyed with it, but you know, that's, I guess that's what happens, and um, yeah, I'll,
0: I'll let it go after this interview. So. Another, another, um, I guess, subcategory is just the monk debates themselves. It seems pretty clear that the whole purpose of the monk debates, besides being entertainment for you know a certain elite of Toronto that will fill up you know concert halls or listen to CBC Ideas or what have you, um, mm-hmm. is to sort of redefine what what is right like to sort of normalize far right as right. And this isn't just isn't with Bannon. If you look at previous speakers, you have Nigel Farage who spoke, Mark Stein, Mm -hmm. Newt Gingrich Gingrich has been there three times. You know, when you have people on the so-called left, uh, you know, the furthest left you'll get is, you know, um, I don't know, like uh, Fareed Zakaria or Stephen Lewis. Um, Henry Kissinger has spoken, Niall Ferguson, who's an apologist for uh, colonialism in India. Uh, so it's the debates themselves are set up for that way. And of course, there's reasons to maybe oppose it some years and not other years. And of course, being named after Monk and trying to basically whitewash this man's reputation, who who uh, is founder of Barrett Gold, has been responsible for all kinds of destruction. And it's, it's all run by this foundation that is basically funding a lot of other right-wing stuff. I, I kind of am asking a question by giving answers, but um, I was just sort of blown away when I paid more attention to these monk debates because I sort of don't. It's like every year there's some semi-famous speakers that come and speak, and it, you know, intellectually it could be interesting or not. But I'm realizing it just really redefines what right-wing and left-wing is to be sort of more right-wing. I was wondering if, if any of you have thoughts about the, these monk debates that have been taking place since uh, 2008.
1: Um. Well... So, this is Maya. Um I think we're also in this really terrifying crisis of public education with these issues. Like, I think the thing that was quite unsettling for me and unnerving was how many people who had no idea who Peter Monk was. Um people I spoke to in line, um people who, when we were chatting with the media, like, weren't drawing connections about where all of the money was coming from to fund this type of work. Um and I think that, like when we think about frames that we choose and how to communicate with the public, it was, you know, or even just the decision to talk about Bannon first and then to bring from into the conversation was to create a climate where people felt like they could follow what was happening and an understanding of why this arc is actually very dangerous. Um, and so, you know, coming into this conversation of why, um, how the monk debates have just become so normalized is because I think largely people have no idea um, and I think, like, it's something that, for example, like the Mining and Justice Solidarity Network has been doing really well um, with, you know, public educational so they've been doing on drawing the connections between Canadian mining and abroad. But we, we have no idea how far this money stretches, and the public certainly have no idea. So creating frames where people can grab onto that narrative and interact with it in a way that educates them is so important. And I don't think something that we do very well on the left, but something we need to get better at doing fast.
0: Another topic is the cops. Prior to this mobilization of, you know, over a thousand people, there have been a lot of small-scale and larger-scale mobilizations in Toronto, all over North America, of course, but in in Toronto against, uh, well, Bannon, but also on out Islamophobes, groups like Pegida, um, this never-ending cycle of of people who try to demonstrate in Nathan Phillips Square or elsewhere – Um, ex-rebel media folks and what have you and the only times they're actually able to mobilize is when there's a large police turnout to allow them to do so but it's not just a large police turnout but police that are actively hostile against the anti-racist anti-fascist side so i'm wondering if you could talk about the role of of the toronto police in in defending um these uh these right wingers and fascists and what kind of tactical considerations that brings up you've you've All three of you have addressed that in one way or another in previous responses, but let's just maybe focus in on the cops. Clearly, if they were less mobilized for this and just were symbolically mobilized, maybe this event could have been shut down. Uh, So Mm -hmm. let's talk about the cops and the role they're playing. Any one of you can start. I was
3: just going to say that what drove home for me just how big they had mobilized and how kind of like far-fetched they had spread to bring their cops in was like, I think that I don't know if it was the exact person who arrested me or the person who was helping him was like a tax fraud cop was kind of what came out in their banter while I was being arrested. Like, they really pulled out every cop in Toronto that they could bring to the scene that night. Um, and I haven't seen that in Toronto since the G20. And this was all centered around kind of one building. So just, yeah, they, they did their best to bring as many cops as they could there that night. And I don't
2: know if anyone has a number, but there were certainly hundreds. Yeah, this is Charmaine. So I, yeah, I think what was really weird is that, so, um, just some context that when we contacted U of T, um, they always say, oh, the Monk Debate is private. It's not not a public thing. It's a private thing, you know? Um, so to claim that, you know, any public, like, except like there's no public services going to it, except it's completely private. So, um, what is like so inc- i mean, I'm not surprised, but um, all these cops came out to allow a private party basically for the rich to continue, and um yeah, there was um, and I guess I maybe took it for granted, I'm like, oh, it's a private event, you know, like um, there may be some cops there, but I was surprised at how um yeah the Normally when I've seen different forms of drug action happen, they kind of like let the activists do their thing for a while um, before they try and clear everyone out. Um, I don't know if that's performative and whatever, but they quickly moved in and shut down any forms uh, or any attempts to try and, you know, um, blocking the parking garage or the doors or anything. Um, and, um, and it was quite a sight to see hundreds of cops just lined up um, not only protecting the building, but protecting people going in, like from lining in, um, like lining, lining up to go in. Um, and they would reform in order to protect people from going in. Um, and, uh, yeah, they also use. I mean, people were trying to, like, cross the barricades in order to, you know, um, block the doors and things like that. Um, they used um, violence on several protesters and pepper spray. Um, but, I mean, it's not a surprise, but once again, they um, show up uh, in the past to allow um, fascists to have the demonstrations and treat us like the enemy. And again, I feel like they were um, treating protesters like the enemy. And there was a few chants um, of people, you know, chanting "Who do you serve?" Things like that. I mean, obviously, we know the answer, but um, it's still—it was just a stark reminder of just how uh, the police state is really set up. Uh, to protect not only, you know, um, rich um, events like this, but, you know, completely private events. I mean, it would make sense for the monks to maybe hire their own security, but this is publicly protecting a private uh, event from happening where people pay $200 a ticket. So, um, yeah, it was, it was. I think, like, we need to think about that as a reality where if we want to start organizing against fascism, it's not just the fascists we have to contend with, but the support they have by the police state and um yeah and uh, i admit before i kind of took it for granted
0: maya did you want to add anything to that
2: um
1: i think yeah i mean it was really um an incredible police response for what was going on it was very reminiscent of the g20 and um I wish we had been more prepared for that type of response. I don't think anyone had expected that type of response from the Toronto police. And I wish we had had more of a backup plan in order to make sure that, you know, the crowd was safer, that we as organizers knew how to deal with things faster and off the cuff. So, um, yeah, at the risk of repeating too much, just what Rachel and Sharmina said, I'll just leave it at that. The,
0: the G20 connection seems apropos. Um, because while the monk debates is a private thing, it's as close as you can get to representing the elite. You mm-hmm. know, people who, while at a private event, are people who, in in their day to day lives, uh, like people like Tony Blair or Henry Kissinger or whatever, are part of that elite. Lawrence Summers, who used to run the World Bank, so um, not surprising that, <laughs> that that happened. Let's let's step away from what happened on Friday, and I know that's tough because it's still pretty raw and still pretty present. Clearly, as as you know, for you guys as as organizers, but let's look at longer longer term strategy and tactics in opposing the racist far right you know before trump but definitely since trump there's been an uptick a clear uptick in north america of mobilizations by the far right and mobilizations against the far right whether it's full on neo nazis whether it's islamophobes whether it's it's more soft uh, far right people who code their racism you know from portland oregon to charlottesville you know in montreal and toronto and nanaimo bc and edmonton people are mobilizing small-scale mobilizations of dozens or large-scale mobilizations of thousands. I talked to two of you beforehand, and you've alluded to it already um, in this interview about, you know, with the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, and along with that, there was a shooting of of two black folks in Kentucky uh, by a shooter who failed to enter a black church to shoot more, the election of Bolsonaro in in Brazil, the seeming uptick of far-right politicians all over people are feeling down about the poss- not the possibilities, but feeling down about the fact that the other side seems to be winning. But I guess taking some of the good morale, if I can put it that way, coming out of how you felt in Toronto, what are some thoughts you want to share about what it takes in terms of longer-term strategy and tactics? Charmaine and, and Rachel, you both addressed this a little bit in our last interview before the mobilization, but now that it's afterwards, I'm interested in your thoughts, I'm interested in Maya's thoughts as well. So any one of you uh, can start about um, some long-term strategic and tactical considerations we should have in terms of opposing the far right. One of the points that one of you made uh, before, uh, when I interviewed you before the mobilization, I think it was you, Rachel, was um, part of it is just getting out there and opposing them, period, and then figure things out as you do it. But beyond that, what are some thoughts you want to share As uh, since you were in the heart of, heart of this mobilization in, a, in difficult, with difficult odds, because this was a, an elite event and a lot of people would say that Bannon isn't a white supremacist, blah, blah, blah. What are some of these tactical and and, um, strategic considerations we should keep in mind?
3: This is Rachel here. I think it was in our last interview, Jaggi, where you uh, mentioned that Bannon had already raised the idea that it's not a question of whether populism is really on the rise or not. It's whether it's going to be populist nationalism or populist socialism. Um, That was something that he said at the debate as well. I hate to...
0: It was practically the first thing that he said. It was almost the first thing out of his mouth at the debate.
3: Yeah, I think it was the first thing he said, yeah. And I honestly don't even know that I know what populism means exactly, or I think it means a lot of different things depending on who's saying it, and I like hesitate to agree with anything he said. But there is some truth there, I think. Um, and I think some of what worked with our media strategy was about proposing a strong, unified, solid, and simple alternative. Um, I... I'm not an expert on global politics, but I think what we're seeing around the world is moments where huge populations, huge segments of the population, have just completely lost any confidence with the establishment as it is, with the institutions of power and authority, with the governments in their country. And then, unfortunately, who's stepping into the void is these, yeah, terrifying uh, right wing hate mongers, whether it's Bolsonaro, whether it's Trump, whatever. Um, And I mean, on some level, it seems obvious that the left needs to be doing the same. I don't know exactly how we do it, but I do sometimes feel like we see these glimpses of how can we show this other vision? How can we make these moments not about scapegoating the people who are most vulnerable, which we all know is one of the major ways that you end up in a fascist state, but instead about identifying, dismantling um, the people and power structures that are actually responsible, and maybe dodging your question a bit because I don't know exactly how we do it, but I think we do keep coming around to that question and sometimes we see glimpses of how we do mobilize people under a powerful um, alternate vision that is about recognizing the real problems in our current system that has power but isn't
2: about um, promoting violence and hate.
0: Charmaine or Maya, do you want to add anything?
2: Yeah, I think uh, this is Charmaine and, um, and I talked a bit about more about, you know, experimenting with different models of organizing and different coalition models. Um, But I think that just like we had a really strong media strategy where I think our politics were clear and people were able to relate to that, um, I do think a longer-term strategy is needing to build our movements kind of on that same level, like giving people, um, not writing people off um, as being, you know, not in, you know, not down with it enough, or not militant enough, um, and giving people a chance um, for the politics to change and to push people. Um, because in this coalition, we had people who were really, really uncomfortable with some of the actions that people wanted to take, and it's not until like we got to be means together and know each other, and it was definitely hard. But I saw some politics shift a bit, and um, I'm I'm definitely um, I'm definitely not wanting to be like i don't want to celebrate our marginality anymore i do want to think about how i think for us to really fight this right rise of the right we need to be stronger not only numbers wise um but also strategy wise and um and we have to build leadership um in places where people haven't seen before and really be serious about that so i yeah i really hope that um you know while there are you know, you talked about a lot of, like, misgivings, and there was, like, definitely mistakes, for sure, because we were trying new things. Um, I hope that people will take a chance on each other um, so that, you know, we don't have to be just our group of five people um, trying to respond, you know? So um, those are sort of my thoughts for a long-term plan. It's just, you know, um, yeah, I'll leave it there.
1: This is Maya, and I think that, I think that something the left is really bad at doing is offering great alternatives to working class people that are struggling and suffering. And I think we have alternatives, but we have been really bad at articulating it. Um, And all that, you know, like, a lot of working class people who maybe don't have a political affiliation or whose only political affiliation has ever been, like, hardline conservative have been let down time and again by, like, big L and small L liberals. And they're now tying that to larger movements because we haven't gotten good at speaking to people. And I think that if we can get better at speaking to people in messaging that is accessible, like I can't really say accessible enough if you are using academic turns you're not able to reach the people that you're trying to reach i think that picking frames and picking and spending time and energy in community building and having difficult conversations that we may have dismissed before as you know well i don't even need to talk to this person or there's no way i'm going to change this person's mind are like are no longer questions that are on the table if we're hoping to build a movement um that takes wings again um and so I think like, really spending the time and energy to get to know communities, to going out and talking to people that you never would usually speak to, and actually spending the time picking frames that anyone can grab onto that really address what's going on in people's lives are ways that I think like, really led to us bringing thousands of people into the street on a Friday night. And I think that that's possible. I think we can do it again and again. And I think we need to spend more time developing the strategies that allow us to get there.
0: Maya, Rachel, and Charmaine, uh, organizers of the recent effort to uh, disrupt and shut down the Bannon from Monk debate uh, this past Friday in Toronto, members of the ad hoc, the Bannon from Toronto unwelcoming committee. I really want to thank you for speaking on the board's media. It really is a privilege to get sort of this insider's take on, on how things played out, and but also your Really awesome reflections on on strategy and tactics, uh, getting ahead of the media frame, getting out there, mobilizing, learning lessons. It really, really is a lot of food for thought, not just the action, but how you reflect on it. So uh, a big thanks for speaking on No Borders Media. Yeah,
2: thanks for, thanks um, for having making us. Thanks space for us. Bye.
0: You were just listening to a No Borders Media podcast featuring three Toronto anti-racist organizers actively involved in the recent mobilization against Steve Bannon and David Frum. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities and resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at network at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.